This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. So indeed, welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast. I'm the magazine's editor, Oliver Condy. And before we get started, a quick reminder to head to our website at classical-music.com where you can read about all the latest music news, browse reviews of thousands of recordings, enjoy our free download of the week, amongst much else. Plus, we're on the usual social media channels. And to keep abreast of what's happening, do sign up to our newsletter via our website. And last, but by no means least, our June issue is out now. The BBC Music Magazine Podcast. And as the Gregorian chant fades away, with me in the studio as usual are Deputy Editor Jeremy Pound, Managing Editor Rebecca Franks and Editorial Assistant Freya Parr. Hello. Hello. Hi. So before we get started, here's a sneak preview of the opening track from this month's cover CD, The Cocaine Overture by Edward Elgar, performed live at the 2009 BBC Proms by the BBC Philharmonic, conducted by Sir Charles McCarris.
So that was a quick extract from Elgar's Cocaine Overture performed by the BBC Philharmonic conducted by the late Sir Charles McCarris. So it's time, obviously, for music news. And before we start the first story, here's a clip that might give you a clue as to what we're just about to talk about. So, Rebecca, what's all that about? Just trying to be calm now after that. <laughs> one of my bet noirs is, is noisy eating, and that gives you a clue uh, as to the story. So this is one of those stories that's kind of taken on a life of its own. Uh, it transpired recently that at the Coliseum in London... Um, audiences going into musical theatre productions there were being... They weren't being allowed to take in food or drink. And they said at ENO that there's a small minority of audiences that have been known to replace water with gin or vodka and it has caused problems. We did a consultation and this was the case for musical theatre audiences. That then caused a whole load of outrage. People said, how elitist, this is not being done for audiences going to opera, to ballet, to classical music. It's only been done for musical theatre. Um, so there's a whole load of outrage about it. ENO subsequently decided to completely update their food and drink policy and now you can't take anything in at all apart from a sealed water bottle. So um, it's one of those stories that has sort of taken on a life of its own, as I say, and turned into this rather strict ban on everything going into the building. That could sort of take it to airline, sort of airport check-in levels, couldn't it? I mean, you could end up spending an awful lot of time in the foyer of ENO, which is not very big. The Colosseum's got quite a small foyer. Um, it's quite, it gets quite crowded, so uh, it, how realistic is it going to be? Well, I suppose they do bag checks anyway now, don't they, at most major venues, mm. and so that is already quite slow. But, I mean, I felt really mixed about this because I think, well, in, during a performance, you don't want to be listening to people eating at all. It's have, very distracting. But have we been but, told what, what, what exactly these problems are which have been caused by vodka and Kate during musical theatre? Was it sort of slow hand clapping, kind of humming along out of time? <laughs> Your guess is as good Violence. as mine. Um, <laughs> well, you don't want drunk audience members, do you? And I suppose if people take half a litre of vodka into a, into an auditorium and and crack it open and start swigging from, from their bottle, I think... But it, then they're still allowed to go, you know, people you can still go and buy a drink. At, that's yeah. the, the thing that's a bit funny, isn't it? You're still allowed to go and buy stuff from the bar and yeah, but you won't buy be as given, much as you like. I but, well, I suppose you won't, be, you won't buy a bottle of it, will you? I suppose you'll just be yeah. given a glass of it. Yeah. I think the bag checks will take place anyway and they maybe just need to be a bit more thorough rather than making a whole blanket rule against anything, making it clear that alcohol is not not allowed to come into the building from in this form. But, I, I mean, I personally find that alcohol is never really a problem when I go to things. It's more the packaging of things that are, is much more irritating as an audience member. Yeah. I don't even really mind people like, eating popcorn too much. Crisps are a whole different kettle of fish. Indeed. Well, what do you think? Um, let us know. Go on to Facebook. Go on to Twitter. Let us know what you think about ENO banning all food and drink taken in. Jeremy, we're going to move on to 25-year-olds and their interest, their renewed interest in orchestral music. <laughs> yes, I, I, 
<laughs> Ironically, having just said that, my story is about um, we've there's been a, a YouGov poll which has discovered that um, 63% of young people, those under age 25, say they they enjoy listening or they 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 want to explore listening to orchestral music. Now then, what is quite interesting here? This is not a case of people suddenly diving into Brahms collections and finding a fascinating interest in Schubert. Actually, what has probably caused this up, upsurge in interest in orchestral music is video games music and film scores. And so it's probably kind of weighted towards that. But still, it's quite an interesting thing to hear that people are actually enjoying orchestral music. Interesting, not kind of choral music or opera or things like that. It's specifically orchestral music, which has kind of gained a new audience. And and if um, presumably if orchestras, concert halls um, read that story, perhaps they might like to play music by Bruckner or Mahler that's got a bit of a film music element to it, you know, that they can sort of latch onto and it might introduce them to... Other bits of wonderful music, Vaughan yeah. Williams, or I they could, know. or as a, or as a sort of an overture rather than a traditional overture, maybe stick in kind of a Star Wars music or something like that. Just yeah. you know, because it's only the the opening bit. Wouldn't hurt, maybe, I don't know. And I think all these um, video game music, uh, that, that whole world, you know, there's a whole industry in concerts now that orchestras can put on and they make a lot of money from it. It's a great thing for orchestras as well because the fans of video game fans, I think they go often go on dressed in character and, you know... It, it's really important in an age where it's kind of more and more difficult for orchestras to make ends meet, to find new ways mm. for them to engage audiences. And video games are spending so much on their soundtrack because you've not yeah. only got two and a half hours or two hours worth of music as you have with a film, you've sometimes got many, many hours because computer games can be played for weeks. Yeah. If you're as bad as I am, then it can be played for months. <laughs> Even years. <laughs> Even years, yes. I still haven't got to the end of Call of Duty. Um, interesting. Um, I, I think my story sort of leads on nicely from that, which is, well, of course, there's got to be some or- orchestras to, to play this music. Um, and there was a story recently about orchestral musicians living, in quotes, on the breadline. Um Musicians finding it very, very difficult to make ends meet and having to diversify a lot and having to teach and having to do other jobs um, versus a lot of their counterparts, both in Europe and in America, who seem to be on salaries, which are sometimes twice, even three times what they're on. And and, and it is hard for orchestral musicians. You, it is hard to make a living simply out of being a member of an orchestra. Mm. Because that's interesting against the backdrop of all the strikes that they've had in America with the unions overpay because they'd be on much bigger salaries. But that's they've got very strong unions, haven't they, for protecting that? Mm. Mm. And of course, being an orchestral musician, the kind of the hours can be pretty antisocial as well. You're mm. sort of you know herring across the country, working late. It's uh, to then to have to sort of fill in other hours by kind of doing other jobs must be quite quite tough. Well, for but, most musicians at music college, to be an orchest- orchestral player would be the ultimate. That's kind of like the the dream for most of them. And you to think be on a good for, contract. Yeah, and, and mm. th- to think that the ultimate career goal for most people at music college is still not going to even get close to making ends meet is it's a concern. But I think it probably always has been that way. I'm not sure this is necessarily a new concept i could be wrong well the flautist quoted in the story Gemma freestone says something very interesting and as much as music colleges aren't teaching the tools of the trade as much as they are just how to play the instrument how mm. to perform in an orchestra you know it's it, it is one thing to to learn how to play it's another thing to know how to manage your professional life and to know how to make those 
you know how to how to pay the mortgage um so i think there's there's probably not enough business um sense being taught i don't know I think that's a general thing across the board in other professions as well, though, because I think lots more people are having to kind of go into freelance work and do other things. And it's all kind of considered to be people take unpaid work because it's considered to be a labour of love, particularly in the arts, in everywhere, in writing and music and art. Mm. Um, And I think that creates a kind of a standard at which people are able to work for free and then or for very, very little. And then that becomes the norm. We've kind of describe this as a sort of a blanket thing, but I presume that there's some orchestras, it probably varies, varies hugely from orchestra to orchestra. There must be some who are actually yeah, fairly good. well remunerated yeah. and others mm, are, are less so. Yes, I imagine some orchestras attract private sponsorship, for example. Mm. But, but I mean, you know, it, compared to some soloists that appear with orchestras, I imagine there's a huge disparity between yeah, the person and, and standing at the front and between well. the conductors and the players, course, which yeah, is yeah, a bit yeah. of a, an it's, age-old gripe. So. It's sort of a funny thing, how hierarchical it still is, I think, mm. whether that's actually a good thing or a bad thing I'm not entirely mm. sure <laughs> let's move on um freya before we talk about your story let's hear some more music Sean Sheba playing Dallin's Prelude for Lute. And the reason we play that is because he was the recipient this year of the coveted Young Artists Award at the Royal Philharmonic Society Music Awards. Um, and we were lucky enough to actually go to the awards ceremony and Sean Sheba played that piece and we were just talking when it was playing then how he transfixed everyone in the room with his playing. It was really lovely. Um, so the other major winners... Um, of the awards this year were Vladimir Jarovsky, who won the Conductor Awards, and we'll come back to him a little later in the podcast. Um, Igor Levitt, the pianist, won the Instrumentalist Award. Um, Alan Clayton, the tenor, won the Singing Singer Award. I mean, the great thing about the, these awards is it's for live music, and this is a celebration of, of, of live performance. And, and a lot of the time, you get awards for recorded or film, or you know. Uh, but this is this is really a, a, such a wonderful thing, actually. To... And you've got a personal insight because you've sat on one of the, the one of the jurors this year. Can you just explain how how you come to your decisions? Well, basically, uh, each of the awards um, have nominations um, which are nominated by members of the Royal Philharmonic Society um, and uh, we basically then sit around a table and discuss the merits of each one and it's such a you know, it can take hours actually. I mean, to come up with our three nominations and then eventually the winner of the f- the, the one I was on was the festivals and series. Uh, we awarded This Is Rattle because it was such a, an innovative and very sort of um, important event to announcing the arrival of Simon Rattle. You know, it does take a lot of time to sort of work through some of these, uh, some of the merits otherwise of, of other series and festivals. And quite a lot of difference of opinion, I should imagine. A lot of difference <laughs> yes. of opinion, very much so. But nice sandwiches. Yeah, good. <laughs> That's the important thing. That's the key bit. But they are, but they are, but they are a magnificent um, uh, celebration. I mean, you know, ev- everyone from all walks of life in, in live music performance was there. 
So one of the uh, winners of the Royal Philharmonic Society Awards was Vladimir Jarovsky, who won the Conductor Award, sponsored, as it happens, by BBC Music Magazine. And Freya, you went to talk to him uh, earlier this month. Yes, I met Vladimir in London, so we're going to listen to a little short clip of the interview. It was quite a long, beefy interview. He had lots to say, so I've just picked a little section where he talks about his time with the LPO and what he really respects about the orchestra. I think people are generally nicer to each other. There is mm, more open-mindedness about mm. things, and and I think the the orchestra is incredibly um, flexible. Mm. Flexible in in every possible direction. The the variety of styles it can master. Um, the you know any demands coming from the soloist, the conductor could can easily be mm. um, accommodated. And and also I find there is a a, a generally very um, open and curious spirit. Uh, people are interested in things they don't know. They want to know. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the orchestra has been very careful at preserving its identity. Um, it's um, very specific approach to sound in all sections. Mm. So we still have this LPO sound, but um, I think we, we we are capable of mastering many more aspects of uh, musical reality than earlier, mm. meaning when we play um, early classical music or Baroque music, we do it in one style, when we do um, Brahms and Wagner, we do it in another style, and when we do contemporary music, we do it yet in a, a third style. So that um, versatility of the orchestra um, is for me one of the results of our interaction mm. over the last 15 years, actually 10 years in the capacity of the principal conductor, but uh, taking into account all my years um, as a principal guest that started in 2004, season 2003-2004, um, plus all the Glyndebourne productions. Mm. So it's 15 years. If you head to our June issue, you can read our full interview with Vladimir Jarosky and also a complete list of the winners from this year's RPS Awards. So it's time to discuss the June issue, which is on sale now. Jeremy, the big theme this month is Elgar. It is Elgar, and it's a, an appropriate month to have Elgar on our cover because Elgarians will know that Elgar's birthday is the 2nd of June. Um, we have focused, actually, this month on his Enigma variations, and we've taken a look at the work character by character and explored... Um, J.P. Harper Scott has written it to him, and he's explored how Elgar uses the two basic themes of the Enigma variations to depict all his friends, and it's quite clever the various ways that Elgar does it. So, for instance, with WMB, who's William Baker, you hear one theme depicts him herring out of the room, and then you can hear his friends laugh 
laughing, which is the second part of the theme. Then he comes, bursts back into the room and we return to the original theme. And you go, we go through each, each character explaining what's going on in the music. Now, the good thing is, is that we don't just do that in text. On our cover CD is actually the Enigma variation, so you can listen to it in line with the text and kind of follow what's going on as you listen. And I think we should hear one of those, in fact. Uh, we've got the uh, variation dedicated to Hugh Stuart Powell, which is a rather lovely, sort of charming, affectionate portrait of his amateur pianist friend. So that was a wonderful recording by the BBC Philharmonic, uh, conducted by Juan Jomena, uh, recorded actually in 2012 in the Victoria Hall in Hanley. Beautiful recording. And on the cover CD this month, we kick off, as you heard earlier, with the Cocaine Overture. And then we finish with a, with a rather lovely, well, rarity of sorts, the Sonata for Organ in G Major, arranged for orchestra by Gordon Jacob. And in my ears, it comes away as sort of almost being like a sort of Elgar Fourth Symphony. It's got a, a rather wonderful orchestral sweep to it uh, the organ symphony of course is worth hearing in its original form but this is a, is a really beautiful arrangement, Gordon Jacob is a, was a, a, a genius master of texture I think in orchestration Hmm. Uh, we give a little introduction to Gordon Jacob in the magazine itself, but he's a, certainly a composer actually who's worth exploring in his own right, not just as, a, as an orchestra, orchestrator. And I've been sort of listening a bit more to his own stuff since hmm. since I've kind of done this issue. So that's our cover CD. Um, let's move on to some more English music, actually. We're going to hear a little bit of Rutland Boughton. <laughs> So that was Rutland Boughton's String Quartet in F from the Welsh Hills. Uh, Freya, why are we listening to Rutland Boughton? So this month, Michael Scott Rowan explores the original Glastonbury, which was founded by Rutland Boughton himself. Um, and I sort of didn't realise that Glastonbury had been around f as a musical hub for so long. But in 1914, he did indeed launch the festival. Um, and Michael Scott Rowan sort of explores how the festival came to be, how it sort of then eventually 
faced its demise. And Rutland Belton just seems like a really enigmatic figure. He's kind of this uber socialist, bit of a floozy, um, so, so kind of traces his naughtiness over the years as well. And it's just a really great story, and you realise what a amazing history the place has. I think the character sketch which Michael draws up of Rutland Bowton is actually every bit as interesting as the festival itself as you say he was he clearly wound people up left right and centre and yet still managed to put together this, this it actually sounds like a phenomenal festival in its own way. Yeah yes. I kind of wish that it carried on really. But of course it was Bowton who caused its own self-destruction <laughs> by by staging a, a performance which was so outrageous that everyone kind of took umbrage at it and refused to sponsor his <laughs> festival <laughs> <laughs> but it sort always of rem- have to keep the sponsors happy yeah. is the moral of the story it sort of reminded me of the sort of the early days of Dartington that sort of free spirit uh, sort of, or maybe Oldborough as well this sort of um, bringing together the, commun- the community bringing singers players you know, putting on what looked like from the photograph pretty shockingly sort of amateur sets but having a huge amount of fun doing it and and actually the music of the Immortal Hour which I think was written for the first festival is actually pretty good stuff um, there's a recording of it on, on, on Hyperion um, which is now I think Helios their reissue label it's it's good stuff well, we, I really think he's a, a terrific composer yeah and here's one oh, the, the, the Queen of Cornwall that came up in long listed for the awards one year I remember having a long discussion about that at the, the awards jury I think we ought to point out by the way that the original Glastonbury Festival didn't take part in muddy fields but was actually in sort of in the town itself in sort of halls and buildings in, in mm-hmm. the town it wasn't a sort of a tent fest like it is today yeah it was quite varied as well they didn't just have music either which I thought no. was interesting so it's sort of plays and ballets and musicals and bits and bobs mm-hmm. so very different to what it is now but nonetheless so let's leave Glastonbury and let's move on to our recording of the month for the June issue Rebecca Yes, so our recording of the month this month is on Harmonium Mundi and it's called Enfer and it's from the baritone Stéphane Degout, Pygmalion and Raphael Pichon and it's a very unusual disc really. So the back describes it as famous opera scenes by Rameau and Gluck but that sort of completely undersells what I suppose is a kind of concept album in a way. So it's sort of fits around the structure of a Requiem Mass, but it's a sort of journey to hell and back into the underworld. It's kind of the whole tracing of, that's the whole sort of structure of the CD. And it is using music by Rameau and Gluck and bringing them together to kind of illustrate this story. And it was also inspired by a French baritone called Henri Larrivée, who was born in Lyon but made his career in Paris and who's very much associated with the music of Gluck. And Stéphane Degout says that his voice is, he feels that from the music they have, is, was very similar to his. So he kind of draws on that inspiration as well and he kind of imagines himself as this, this character um, going through this sort of constructed opera, which really sounds like a lot of explanation and probably the best thing is just to play it a bit actually and you get get a sense of it but it's a very theatrical approach um, and I've chosen a little track which is um, a piece of Gluck so maybe we could hear that <laughs> Let's go. 
Well, that sounds rather fun. Yeah, so that was a bit from Gluck's Old Mead, um, and it's a bit at the start where they've sort of just gone and go to the un- underworld and they're seeing all these monsters that they're full of rage and sort of coming from the underworld and trying to face them. So the whole thing is very dramatic, basically. I think it's it's, it's something that seems to be done more and more, which is these sort of reconstructed operas or programs or themes or this that and the other I, I think it's 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 fascinating to see programs sort of being linked rather than sort of having just sort of random arias mm, i mean especially for early sort of... opera where you know they're not put on really mm. so much by big opera houses or anything this is a way of getting the music out there and actually Raphael Pichon he was at the proms last year and he did a big Monteverdi thing and I think he really likes using space and making use of the buildings that he's in and sort of really thinking of things in a very creative and interesting way Fantastic. And what label's that on? Harmonia Mundi. Harmonia Mundi. So let's move on to first lesson. First lesson. So this is the part of the podcast where we all bring to the table a recording that is intrigued amused, entertained, moved us uh, in various ways. So we're going to start with Freya. What have you brought this month? So I bought the new disc from Voches 8 uh, and it's called Equinox and we're just going to listen to uh, a track from Jonathan Dove's Passing of the Year and it's a final movement and it basically forms the centrepiece of this whole disc. Um, So the movement's called Ring Out Wild Bells. So that was Ring Out Wild Bells, the final movement of The Passing of the Year by Jonathan Dove. And that's from Equinox by Watchers 8 on VCM Records. And I actually just chose this disc because I think the programming is really interesting. They kind of explore the threshold between the seasons of the, and the changing of the seasons through the lens of both sacred and secular music. And I think it's just a really lovely... Um, just a really lovely collection of very different music. There's kind of contemporary and much older works and they work very well together and I think the performance is really lovely. They're very varied interpretations of the story of, you know, the changing of the seasons. And So the different composers? Yeah, completely all different composers from different times. Um, so who else have we got? On so list? we've got um, pieces by Britain, um, Pretorius, uh, Jonathan Dove, of course, forms the main centrepiece of the disc, Arvo Pert, Thomas Tallis, Elgar. It's a real mix, but I think it works really nicely and you do feel like you've been taken on a big journey of the year by the by the end of it. Good stuff. Jeremy, what have you brought to the table? Right, I'm going to treat you all to a little bit of Finnish clarinet music. Thank you. 
That was the clarinet concerto in E-flat major by Bernhard Krusel, played by Michael Collins and the Swedish Chamber Orchestra, and Michael Collins was actually directing it from the clarinet himself. Um, Krusel was a contemporary of Spohr and Weber at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, he was finished, as I say, and on this disc you have three his three clarinet concertos and the introduction et suédois now cruzel himself was actually a, a clarinet virtuoso as well as a, a composer and you can really hear that throughout this disc and michael collins is playing on it throughout is exceptional just this virtuoso playing these incredible clarinet fireworks just taken in his stride but it's also played with real charm by the Swedish Chamber Orchestra it's a bit of a discovery for me I've heard of Cruzel before a little bit didn't know much of his music mm. I already love the Weber and Spohr clarinet concertos and this is sort of a, a wonderful addition to those Terrific Rebecca so I brought along a disc of piano trios by Rebecca Clark and Maurice Ravel, uh, so more French. Um, and maybe we could start, have a little listen to the Andante Molto Semplice, which is the middle movement of Rebecca Clark's piano trio. So that was played by the Griffon Trio as a Canadian ensemble. And they've put these two piano trios together, um, the Ravel's from 1914 and the Rebecca Clark from 1921, so they're kind of either side of, of World War One. And actually, the two composers did know each other because Rebecca Clark was also a viola player and she actually performed in the UK premiere of Ravel's Introduction in Allegro. And it's also it's a rather fun story. So there was an after party um, after that performance and she had picked up this trick of being able to read tarot cards as a bit of a party trick party game and she was doing that and Ravel asked her to read his um, read his tarot as well and she decided that he was very secretive about love but a genius at art which I don't know if she really needed the cards to, <laughs> to tell her that but um, apparently he was very nice, very strange quiet, reserved, rather secretive um, but yes yeah, so they were kind of, they kind of knew each other and were friends and actually Ravel's sound world obviously very much sort of feel that in Rebecca Clark's music mm. um, and I just really enjoyed this disc yeah, beautiful harmonies. I mean, gorgeous Revelian harmonies. Mm. I, mean, I actually had to look at the um, sleeve to see if there wasn't a bit of Ravel that I hadn't heard before. Yeah. A sort of bit of undiscovered Ravel, but not. I know, wonderful composer. Yeah. So I'm going to choose, I have chosen a recording on ECM uh, by normally the jazz pianist Kit Downs, um, but this is the third of his recordings that he's explored jazz and improvisation on the pipe organ. It's a really interesting collaboration that he's done with saxophonist Tom Challenger. And in fact, most of this recording actually is just Kit Downs on his own, improvising on three organs, one in London and two in Suffolk. And 
they're recorded in various ways, sort of quite distant and quite close as well. But what comes across is his very expressive use of the instrument, but the real intimacy and, and the actual beauty of some of the simplicity of the sounds that he gets from these instruments. Um, I think he's a really talented musician. He's, I've, I've always admired his piano work. Um, he was an organist, actually, when he was at Norwich Cathedral. He was encouraged to take up the organ almost became, I think, an organist in, in, in his own right, but uh, then sort of um, went into the jazz world. And Tom Challenger, actually, the saxophonist, encouraged him to revisit the organ. Um, and he's he's produced these albums. We're going to listen to the final track of Obsidian, which is performed on this tiny one-manual instrument uh, in a little village near Snape. And... Um, it's a an arrangement of a hymn tune actually written by his father Paul Downs. So it's it's a very charming little piece that that ends this lovely uh, recording. And if you listen carefully, you can hear birdsong chirruping in the background. It's just so beautifully recorded. Um, it's got the usual sort of ECM, um, you know, detail in, in, in the reproduction of the sound. And you can hear the action of the organ and, and, and just this sort of sense of the hands coming off the keys and the air sort of slightly leaking out of the rickety mechanics of the, of the organ. It's just got this real sort of contemplative, beautiful atmosphere that I, I just love. So that, in fact... With Kit Downs's lovely hymn improvisation brings us to the end of this month's BBC Music Magazine podcast. Do join us next month for our next edition. In the meantime, do visit our website, classical-music.com, for lots of music news and other bits and bobs. So it's goodbye from all of us. Goodbye. Goodbye. goodbye.